Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 3, if you're visiting with us, we preach through books of the Bible, and from Old and New Testament, and just recently I started a new series where I'm preaching through the book of Joshua, and we've come to this third chapter, and let's begin by reading it in its entirety together. Joshua chapter 3, this is God's inspired word. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents, to pass over the Jordan with the priests, bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon. And these and those flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. 
Amen. That's the reading of God's Word. And let me pray and ask His blessing upon it now. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word from the book of Joshua, this third chapter. We know that all Scripture is breathed out by You and profitable for reproof and training in righteousness that we might be equipped for every good work. We pray that You would So work in our hearts and minds as we study this passage together, as we hear you speak to us through your word, that we would learn, that we would grow spiritually, that we would be transformed in our character and in our life as a result of hearing from you this morning in this passage. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. John G. Payton was a Scottish Presbyterian minister who went as a pioneer missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. And the indigenous people who inhabited the island were extremely hostile to outsiders. And Peyton, therefore, had many harrowing experiences trying to bring the gospel to them. For instance, one night, the place where John and his wife lived was surrounded by native warriors who had come with the intent to kill him. And in their terror, the Paytons spent the night in desperate prayer to God for deliverance. In the morning, they woke and discovered that the warriors had left without attacking them. I should say, I don't think they fell asleep that night, but when they went out of their house. A year later, the chief of that tribe who had sent those warriors, was converted through John G. Payton's ministry. And John talked with him later about that night. And he asked, why did your warriors not attack and kill us, as they had plainly intended to do? And the chief was somewhat taken aback. And he said, well, it was because of all the large men and shining garments with drawn swords in their hands that were standing around your house. John was confused, and he explained to the chief that there had been no warriors standing around his house that night. And then it dawned on both of them that what the chief's warriors must have seen were actually angels sent from God to deliver the patents from harm. You know, that spectacular event left a lasting impression clearly on John G. Payton and his wife about their God. And it's also affected many people uh, the same way. It's an oft-repeated story because it's been passed down to us in the autobiography of John G. Payton, which actually we have, I think, on the first shelf or second shelf of our book card if you want to read the incredible story of his missionary work in the New Hebrides. There's a sense in which the same is true of this event recorded here in Joshua chapter 3. Joshua 3 tells us a story of a spectacular event which left a lasting impression upon the nation of Israel, particularly about their God. And it has been preserved in Scripture so that it might have a similar 
effect upon the people of God who read it in every generation down to us today. So, what I want to do is I want to start by walking through this story so that we might experience something of the magnitude of this event today. And then I'll try to unpack at least something of the impact that it is intended to have upon God's people as they read it. So first, let's walk through the story told in Joshua 3 and unpack it in greater detail. So the story begins there in chapter 3, verse 1, with these words. Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. In other words, Joshua led the nation of Israel from the plains of Moab, where they had been camped for some time, where Moses delivered the great sermon that's recorded in Deuteronomy. And he led them down to the edge of the Jordan River, to a place called Shittim, which literally means acacia groves. It was apparently where they were going to cross over the Jordan River. And I want you to, first of all, try and grasp the significance of what is about to happen here in this passage, chapter 3 and also chapter 4. So that you don't miss the anticipation that is building in this text. You know, if you think about it, it had been somewhere around 800 years. 800 years. Since the Lord had first given that promise to Abraham to give the land of Canaan to his descendants. You can read the first promise articulation of it in Genesis 12, 7. First Abraham, then his son Isaac, then his grandson Jacob, had all lived in the land of Canaan, but only as sojourners, living as strangers in a foreign land, hoping in the promise that one day God would give that land to his descendants. And that was for something like 300 years the patriarchs wandered in the land. And then as God had actually told Abraham would happen in Genesis 15, Jacob ended up leading the family of Abraham's descendants down into Egypt where they were fruitful and multiplied into a great nation over the course of another 400 years. And then finally the Lord raised up Moses and brought an Aaron and brought them out of captivity in Egypt. You remember through uh, by bringing the ten plagues upon the Egyptians until they finally let them go and then drowning Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea, and then leading his people to Mount Sinai, where he entered into a covenant with them. And then he led them through the desert, and they get to the edge of the promised land, and the people rebel against God and refuse to take possession of the heritage that he had promised in them. And so God judges them. And says they must wander in the desert for 40 years until that exodus generation of Israelites had all but died out except for Joshua and Caleb. And now, finally, they're back. After nearly eight centuries of waiting, the day had arrived when the descendants of Abraham, now a huge nation called Israel, would finally cross over that Jordan River to begin taking possession 
of the land which God had promised to them 800 or so years earlier. You see, this was a climactic event in history. This was a major turning point in the unfolding plan of God. Now the next verse, verse 2, tells us that they stayed there in Shittim for three days before the actual crossing. Now some of you might be very astute readers. And you might be recognizing that at this point the timeline of events here is getting a little funny. Because back in chapter 1, verse 11... Joshua told the people to prepare to cross the Jordan in three days. And here in verse 2, it says, at the end of three days, they prepared to cross. So far, so good. Except there is a second chapter in between, and in that chapter, it said that the spies went into the land and hid in the hills for three days before returning. So where did those three days fit in? You know, it may indicate that what we're seeing in chapter 2 of Joshua, the story of you know, the spies and Rahab the prostitute, that these stories are not actually told in strict chronological order. That Rather, that mission of the spies may have happened during the three-day period mentioned in verse, chapter 1, verse 11, and here in chapter 3, verse 2. Or maybe it even happened before it but it was inserted into the story between chapters 1 and 3 for literary purposes. You know, you know how this works. Maybe you're watching a movie and you see how the scenes switch back and forth in time and maybe there's a flashback and all of it is for effect. It, it communicates things and helps the story move along. Well, nevertheless, at the end of three days, being camped there on the edge of the Jordan River, the officers went through the camp He commanded the people, and they said this, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Now, here... The author directs the attention of the readers to the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned nine times in this chapter. If you're not aware of it, that's a lot of times for one thing to be mentioned in a chapter. And that indicates its central importance to the story being told here. Now, of course, the author just mentions the Ark of the Covenant, assuming that whoever's reading this book is already familiar with what it is. Why? Because it's assuming that you've already read the first five books of the Bible, which talk about the Ark in detail. But in case any of you have forgotten, the Ark of the Covenant is essentially a wooden box. Uh, It contained the two tablets of stone upon which were written the Ten Commandments. Those Ten Commandments which summarized the law of God, which would define the relationship between God and his old covenant people. That's why it's called the Ark of the Covenant. It was also described in the scripture many times as the throne of Yahweh, the throne of the Lord. Why? Because you remember that Ark would be housed in the most holy place, in the inner room of The tabernacle, which simply means the tent, God's tent. 
As they traveled through the desert, they would camp around the tent of God. And inside, in the inner room, was the ark. And it was said that God would was enthroned as the king of his old covenant people there upon the seat of the ark between the two cherubim. And of course, whenever they stopped, they would see the glory cloud of his presence descend and fill that inner room of the tabernacle and reside there upon the ark. And so this is what the ark of the covenant is. It's why it's called not only the ark of the covenant, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God. It essentially represented the presence of Yahweh with his old covenant people, the nation of Israel. When they saw the ark, they would think, the Lord. So when the officers told the people, camped there at Shatim, that the Ark of the Covenant was going to be carried out in front of them, and they were to follow behind it from a distance, well, it was a way of saying that, Israel, Yahweh himself, your God, is going to lead you over the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Like a great shepherd leading his flock out to pasture, or a great king leading his army into battle. The nation was told that they were to keep a distance of 2,000 cubits, which is about a half a mile, between them and the ark. And in this case, it wasn't out of reverence for his holiness, but so that the whole nation might see the ark, because it was out there in front, and that they would be able to follow the trail that it was blazing for them. Next, Joshua commanded the people, verse 5, it says, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. It's very interesting when you hear that phrase, if you're familiar with the Pentateuch, it brings your mind back to the foot of Mount Sinai, where that day before they were to go to the foot of Sinai and meet with God, where his glory cloud would come with great peals of thunder and lightning upon the mountain. And the day before, God had said, Consecrate yourselves. For you're going to meet with God. And it was described there that that meant they were to wash their clothes and abstain from sexual activity. Well, here too it says that they were to consecrate themselves because the next day they would see Yahweh, the Lord, do wonders among them. In other words, they were about to have a front row seat for a display of God's supernatural power in the form of a mighty miracle. It feels a little bit abrupt, but I think we're to understand that the next verse, verse 6, actually is picking up the story the next day. That between verses 4 and 5, we've skipped forward to the next day when that event predicted in verse 5 actually takes place. So in verse 6, we're told that Joshua commanded the priests, okay, carry the Ark of the Covenant and begin walking ahead of the people toward the Jordan. Now at that point, however, our attention is drawn away from the ark by an account of something that the Lord said to Joshua. And I'm going to argue that this is probably something that the Lord had said to Joshua previously. Rather, this is sort of like a flashback in time to this conversation which had taken place where the Lord had addressed Joshua about what was going to happen. 
And we see it there in verses 7 and 8. It says, The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. So first, the Lord explained to Joshua one purpose of the miracle that he was about to perform. It would be intended to solidify Joshua's role as the new leader in Israel. And everyone, as they saw this great wonder, would think of Moses and the wonders that God performed through him. And they would say, ah, the Lord is with Joshua now, as he was with Moses. Joshua is our new leader. And then next, the Lord instructed Joshua how to prepare for the miracle. The priests, for their part, were to carry the Ark of the Covenant down to the edge of the water of, of the Jordan River, and they were to stand still in the shallow waters there in the edge. And then the Lord will do the rest. Now it appears from verses seven through eight, it appears that verses seven through eight are actually just a summary of what the Lord told Joshua. Because then you see that Joshua turns around in verses nine through thirteen. And the flashbacks ended. We've zoomed back to the time when he sent the priests out with the ark. And he turns and he instructs the people about what's going to happen. And he gives even more detail than were laid out in verses 7 through 8. He describes this miracle that God is going to perform. And he tells the Israelites what they were supposed to learn from it. Except the order is sort of reversed. He tells them what they're supposed to learn from it first, and then he tells them what the miracle will be. And I think that's sort of for dramatic effect. Everything about the miracle is pushed off, pushed off, pushed off, so that when it happens, all this anticipation has been built. So first, Joshua told them that what they were supposed to learn from the wonder that the Lord was going to perform. There in verse 10, he says, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you. And that he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. The miracle, in other words, was intended to assure the Israelites that the Lord, Yahweh, their God, would not fail to keep his promise to do what seemed impossible and drive out these great nations who were residing on the other side of the Jordan in the land of Canaan, so that they might take possession of their land. And Israel needed to be assured of this, because when they cross over to that land, I mean, they're a wandering nomadic people, right? They don't have any cities. They don't have any engines of war. How are they going to defeat all these nations? who are great and strong and established nations. They don't have the power. They don't have the wisdom. So it was important that they learn this truth that Joshua tells them they were to learn from this miracle. And then, after describing what they were supposed to learn from the miracle, Joshua finally reveals what the miracle itself would consist of. And you see it there in verses 11 through 13. It says, Behold, The ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth 
is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Okay, so the basic gist of the miracle is this. When the priests carry the ark into the Jordan River, the Lord, who sits enthroned upon the ark, would part the waters of the Jordan so that the Israelites could pass over on dry land. But I want you to notice that dramatic way that Joshua described the ark in these verses. Did you see it? Did you catch it? He called it the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth. Verse 11. Then again in verse 13, he called it the ark of of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, verse 13. Now the force of those descriptions, it's clear, isn't it? Joshua wants the people of Israel to recognize and appreciate the Lord, Yahweh, who sat enthroned upon the ark, was the one true God, the only God among all the gods of the nations of the earth. He's the only one who actually existed, who actually was alive. And he was with them as their God to lead them across the Jordan into the promised land, to help them to drive out these seven nations and take possession of the land. And that truth was all Israel needed to know. They didn't need to understand exactly how the conquest was going to work and all of its details. They didn't need to know how large and strong the Canaanite nations were in comparison to their armies. Uh, They didn't need a brilliant battle plan. It was enough to know that Yahweh was with them. That He was going to lead them in this process. He would guide them. He would give them success. Why? Because He alone is the living God. And He has all wisdom and all power. And no enemy in heaven or on earth could withstand Him. And the miracle that He's about to perform before their eyes and drying up the waters of the Jordan so that they could cross over, it would testify to that fact. So that they might know beyond a shadow of a doubt, not just intellectually, Yeah, the Lord is with us. Oh, the Lord is with us. The Lord of all the earth. And then finally, the miracle which Joshua said would happen in verses 9 through 13 happened in verses 14 through 17. So it's described in such a way as to really highlight for you just the greatness of this event. So for instance, Did you notice there's sort of a literary version of slow motion that you often see um, happen in the Old Testament? That is, the text will zoom in and slow down so that now you're reading and you're focusing on very small events and watching them unfold. So you see it there in verse 14 and 15. It says, So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped into the brink of the water. You see the effect? 
Now the reader is focused in upon the feet of the priests carrying the ark, eagerly waiting what is going to happen the moment their feet touch the water. But before describing then what happens, he has a little aside. He says, by the way, the Jordan overflows all its banks during the time of the harvest. Now, the Jordan River was not a overly large river like the Nile or the Euphrates. It was more like the Sacramento River as it runs through Reading here. It said it's about, at this place, maybe 90 to 100 feet in width and maybe ranging from 3 to 10 feet deep. But in the springtime, that is, in the grain harvest, when the late rains came and added to it was the snow melt coming down from Mount Hermon, you see the river would run much higher and swifter than usual. It would overflow its banks. Kind of like when they start letting out a ton of water out of Shasta Dam and we see the river go up. So, whereas before it would have been very difficult for men, women, and children to cross over the Jordan River, now, in the grain harvest, it would have been almost impossible. The river's overflowing all its banks. And the author's saying, by the way, as the priests go down to dip their feet into the river, the river is at flood stage. And it made what was about to happen all that much more amazing. Finally, we're told what happened. When those feet of the priests carrying the ark of the Lord touched the water at the edge of the Jordan River that day. So zooming out at top speed. So picture it in your mind. The feet touch the Jordan River and then the text zooms out. And it says, now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant, or sorry, the, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away. So now you're out at this city way upstream, Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off. In other words, as soon as the feet of those priests touched the waters of the Jordan River in front of the nation of Israel, the water stopped flowing and began to dry up because 18 miles north, next to a city called Adam, the water of the river began piling up in a gigantic heap, a huge wall of water, so that nothing flowed downstream from that point. Now the result of this miracle is described there in verse 17. It says, Now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. So the Lord, who sat enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant carried by the priests, is sitting there in the middle of the Jordan River. And it's like he's holding back the raging waters with his almighty hand so that 600,000 men, along with their wives and children and their livestock, in other words, millions of people, could cross over on dry ground. You know, it's like... To use a really small version of it. And when you're walking along a trail and dad sees that the bushes have sort of grown over the trail and he sort of gets in front of the bushes and holds back the, the sharp branches so that his family can pass through. That's sort of what's happening here, except on a much more spectacular degree. 
It was designed to confirm his presence with them, his commitment to use his awesome power to give them success in this daunting mission which lay ahead. One can't help noticing, of course, did you notice it? A clear parallel between this event and a previous event in Israel's history, which had occurred about 40 years earlier. You know, that description of Yahweh parting the Jordan here in Joshua 3, it clearly echoes the description of Yahweh parting the Red Sea back in Exodus 14. They both involve him parting the water in a large body of water that stood in Israel's way so that they could pass through it. But more than that, the language, the terminology used echoes that previous event. So Joshua 3.17 says, And all Israel was passing over on dry ground. And it repeats that language of dry ground. Well, that, that just echoes the repeated language used in Exodus 14, describing the crossing of the Red Sea. Exodus 14.29 says, The people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. So there is clearly an intentional literary parallel being drawn between those two events. So just as Yahweh led Israel through the Red Sea on, their, on dry ground when he brought them out of Egypt. Now he is leading them through the Jordan on dry ground as he brings them in to Canaan. And what is that parallel supposed to do? Well, it emphasizes the unchanging nature of Israel's God. Moses is gone, replaced by a new leader, but the Lord is still in their midst. And he had not changed. And because of that, they were safe. They were dry. They were on the other side of the Jordan River. They've entered the promised land for the first time in history. And Israel could know they were perfectly secure. Nothing to fear going forward. So, we've walked through the story. Joshua 3. Now let's just think about What impact is this supposed to have upon us today as God's new covenant people in Christ? Well, I would just say this. The main point and the main purpose of this chapter, I think, is captured well in verse 10, right there in the center of the story, where Joshua says to the Israelites, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. In other words, what is this chapter about? It's about Yahweh parting the Jordan so that Israel could cross over into the land of Canaan. And what is the purpose of it? What is it meant to do? It's meant to strengthen Israel, to know that their God, Yahweh, was the living God and that he was with them and that he would give them the land of Canaan as he had promised. Now, of course, these principles apply then to us as Christians in a derivative sense, right? As we read them now, centuries later. Why? Because we too are the covenant people of God. We are the new covenant people of God. And the Lord, Yahweh, who parted the Jordan River in Joshua 3 is our God too just as he was the nation of Israel's God. And we're reminded here that our God is the living God. That is, he is the only God, the only true God, who actually exists 
and who can actually and actually does do things in the world, in history. And he has done and he continues to do many things like this in the world. He is not the God that, for instance, the deists imagine, who after creating the world and winding it up, just sets it loose to run on natural laws without really interfering with it much. No, the Bible is this record of the true and living God and his mighty acts in history, in the world that he created. You know, he created the world in seven days and then he destroyed it with a flood. He brought down fire from heaven upon Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin, but he rescued the nation of Israel out of Egypt and he gave them manna from heaven and water from a rock for 40 years in the desert. And in our text, we see he parted the Jordan River for them so that they cross over into Canaan on dry land. You see, He is Yahweh, the one true God, the Lord of all the earth, who accomplishes all His holy will in the universe that He has made. I think of that wonderful verse, chapter, or Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. See, it's not just that a God out there is in the heavens. Our God is in the heavens. And he does all that he pleases. I wonder, believer, do you know this about God? Oh, I know that you know it. But I mean, do you really know it? Have you grasped that he alone is the true and living God and that he actually does things in the world, in this church, in your lives? Or do you think that God is not particularly involved with people's lives? Except when he's needed to resolve a problem. If so, then you're actually living like a deist. And you do not really know your God very well. And part of the reason this text was written was to testify to you of his mighty acts so that you might know that the living God is with you is among you. Indeed, the whole Bible should have that effect upon you when you read it in one sense. Especially the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which bear witness to the greatest of all of God's mighty acts in history. Do you remember how Zechariah foretold it in his prophecy in Luke 1, 68-69? He said, The Lord God of Israel has visited and redeemed His people by raising up a horn of salvation for them out of the house of His servant David, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ, who then took on human flesh and died for our sins upon the cross and rose again unto eternal life to give us eternal life. You who believe that announcement of good news, this gospel of Jesus Christ, which is recorded for us in the writings of the eyewitnesses to these events, you who believe that, you should know, above all, that the living God is among you. And yet this chapter, Joshua 3, it's intended to press home the particular point That Yahweh, the living God, the Lord of all the earth, as Joshua said, is with us, his covenant people, in a special way. In Joshua 3, he was with them to drive out the Canaanites from the land. But in a similar way, he is with us to do what? 
to fulfill the promises He has made to us in the new covenant. You know, in Joshua 3, this presence of Yahweh with His people to fulfill His promise, it was emphasized by the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. That was a symbol of God's presence leading them through the waters of the Jordan into Canaan. But, you know, of course, the Ark of the Covenant has become obsolete with the coming of Jesus. Because He is the ultimate fulfillment of what that Ark symbolized. Because He is Yahweh come down into our world in human flesh to dwell among us. Do you remember that? John 1, the Word was with God, the Word was God, through Him all things were made. In the beginning, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. And as the writer of Hebrews has made so clear, when Christ offered Himself up to God as a once-for-all sacrifice on the cross, He rendered the old covenant and its temporary structures like the ark obsolete. That's why... The curtain in the temple was rent from top to bottom when Jesus said, it is finished, and he breathed his last upon the cross. Because now, having been cleansed from our sins once for all, we as Christians have become the new temple of his presence. He is with us in that he lives within us and among us. Paul said in Ephesians 2.22, in him... You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the truth reflected in Joshua 3 by the presence of the ark going with them is even more true of us as Christians. The living God, the Lord of all the earth, is in our midst to guide us and to fulfill all of His promises to us. Only the promises that He has made to us in Jesus Christ are not to drive out the Canaanites, but to sanctify us by enabling us to put to death the deeds of the body by the power of the Spirit and to work out our faith and love. He has promised to use our gospel proclamation to make disciples of all the nations and bring them into the church of Jesus Christ so that His rule might extend to the hearts of more and more people throughout the world. He's promised to guard our faith by His power and to keep us from falling away in times of trial so that He might present us before himself as a spotless bride on the final day. And of course, he's promised to raise us from the dead when he returns in glory at the end of the age to inherit the new creation where we will live in perfect fellowship with him, free from sin and all its effects for time unending. These are the promises he is with us to bring to fulfillment now. So you see, Joshua 3 was written in part so that the people of God in every generation, including you and me, might know that the living God, the Lord of all the earth, who parted the Jordan in Joshua 3, is with us, and He will keep His promises that He has made to us. Believer, has your heart been wavering in unbelief, uncertain of whether the Lord is truly with you or not? Wondering whether His promises might be in vain because of some struggle, some trial you're enduring? May this passage bring home to your heart afresh. Yahweh is with you. Now by the indwelling Spirit, one day when you stand before the risen Christ in glory. And He will keep every promise that He has made to you in the new covenant. And if God is with you, what enemy can stand against you? You are utterly secure. There's nothing to fear. 
I wonder, do you, do you know this God? Maybe you're here and you're an unbeliever. The Yahweh, the Lord, described in our text, He is the creator of heavens and earth. He is the one who knit us together in our mother's womb. He made us in His image, everyone in this room, whether you know Him or not. And that means you are accountable to Him for how you live your life, whether you know it or not. We all stand before His judgment seat at the end of the age to give an account for our life. And if you haven't been worshiping Him, if you haven't been obeying His commands, then... And this is true of all of us. We've fallen short. We are under his judgment for our sin, and the wages of sin is death. And so we need him to save us. We need him to be merciful to us, to forgive us. And that's what he has done through his son, Jesus Christ. He sent Jesus to do everything that we needed to save us, to keep all of his commands perfectly on our behalf, to take the penalty for our sin in our place at the cross, to rise again that we might have vindication and life in him and all if we simply will repent and believe in Jesus Christ for our salvation. So if you haven't done so this morning, I hope that you will repent and believe in Jesus Christ to save you. And he will. But finally, just one more thing. This I want to draw your attention to the instructions that God gave to the nation of Israel to prepare them for this miracle. He told them to consecrate themselves before the meeting that they were going to have with the Lord when they would see him do this wonder in their midst. You know, I think this is a sober reminder that it is the greatest of all privileges to be the covenant people of God who dwell in his presence. And yet it comes with a need for consecration. Those who dwell in the presence of the holy God must also themselves be holy. Now, of course, this consecration happens in a definitive way through the blood of Christ shed for our sins when he cleanses us from the stain and guilt of our sins when we believe. But it also means that we are responsible not to take sin lightly, but to cleanse our lives from sins that defile us by repenting of them and walking in obedience to God. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We all sin, brothers and sisters. But we cannot treat the sin in our lives lightly, such that we pamper it and allow it to continue unchecked. Maybe it's outbursts of anger. Maybe bitterness and resentment. Maybe it's gossip and slander or pornography and fornication or stealing and lying or hatred of siblings or on and on. We are the people of God. He dwells in our midst. We must consecrate ourselves by confessing such sins as wrong, turning away from them, walking in obedience to God instead by the power of the Spirit whom He has given to us. Sometimes we'll need help for that. You may need to confess your sin to someone who can help you get unentangled from it. But it's a sober call. And then second, he instructed Israel to follow the Ark of the Covenant as it went before them into Canaan. Why? Because they had not been that way before. And that was a reminder that the Lord, whose presence the Ark symbolized, was their leader. They would only prosper if they followed him. Can you imagine if they stopped following the Ark and just went off on their way? That It was dangerous territory. They'd be immediately destroyed. The same is true of us believers. God has come to us in Christ 
He is our good shepherd. And he leads us. Oh, not with the ark carried by the priest, but by his word and spirit. But like Israel, we are walking through dangerous territory to do a task that's impossible for us. So our only hope is to follow the lead of our Lord Jesus Christ. How? By obeying his word, by the power of the Spirit, without rebellion and unbelief. And that means the word of God must have a central place in our lives because it's how the Lord Jesus leads us in paths of righteousness. If we neglect or abandon the scriptures, we're turning aside. We're just going our own way. If you're not following God's word, whose word are you following? Yourselves or some other man? Of course, it will not always be easy to follow the teaching of Christ. Why? Because it cuts across the grain of many ideas and values and practices which the world around us holds. But if we trust and obey the voice of our Good Shepherd speaking in this book, then we will find that He will lead us to green pastures and quiet waters and we'll experience abundant life. Well, in conclusion... Joshua 3 tells the story of this spectacular event which had a lasting impact upon the nation of Israel about their God. And it's been preserved in Scripture so that it might have a similar effect upon us today. May we be freshly amazed by the awesome power of our God. May we be comforted again with His presence with us to do us good. And may we be motivated all the more to consecrate ourselves for his service and follow his lead in our lives. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you have come to us. That you've entered into our world, that you've taken on human flesh, that you've become our Savior, King, our Good Shepherd and Friend. You have taken us as your Holy Bride and are sanctifying us. Thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit by which you guide us and direct us and sanctify us. We pray that through this text you would increase our knowledge of God, of yourself, of your glory, that we might know you more and that you would instruct us in what it means to be your people and to follow you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.